Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So everything else is going to be all right. Isn't that true? Can I say that two weeks before Easter? I'm not sure if that's allowed, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's how we live. He rose 2,000 years ago. Um, it's really good to be with you. I am a familiar and unfamiliar face in this church. And my family is the same. Uh, my family are members here at this church, but we spend so much of the time overseas sent by you that a few of you don't sometimes recognize us. And we don't recognize you. So that's who we are. Uh, we've had the awesome privilege of living in Beirut, Lebanon for the last two years, in the Middle East for the last nine and a half years, and we work among Syrians. That's our priority. I get to serve among a Lebanese church, and I get the privilege of... My, my pulpit in, in Lebanon is not like this. My pulpit in Lebanon is on floor cushions around living rooms drinking cups of tea and opening the scriptures with refugees. So that's, that's what I get to do. I'm very lucky, uh, very blessed. Uh, we have a number of special guests with us. If you're visiting, you really honor us. Thank you for being here. And I'd love to meet you. And many of our leaders, elders, and families would love to meet you. Uh, I also want to uh, reintroduce or, or, or point out again Tom and Teresa Wilson who are with us. Would you guys be willing to stand for a moment? So everyone can, can know who you are. Yeah. Tom and Teresa serve in Nagoya, Japan, with a church planning team among an unreached people group. And they especially use the arts, the performing arts, music, theater, to penetrate, to love, to communicate the gospel and to build relationships. So what they do is really special. I've seen them in action at least once at one of our uh, organizational conferences. And I'll tell you, they're worth meeting. I, I encourage you to, to go and meet them afterward, talk to them, stand around them. Don't even wait for one at a time, just four or five people at a time. Gather around them and just listen to what they have to say uh, this morning because we support them. We are partners with them in what they do. So you're a part of that whether you knew it or not. So go get to know them and, and pray for them. Sign up for their newsletter perhaps. Um, for us, if you want to get a free magnet, we just got printed. Uh, you can also grab one of those in the foyer afterward. We got a magnet that says, Pray for Lebanon. And you can sign up for our newsletter too. And you can even get a little Arab uh, suite, if you'd like, off our table. Um, thanks for being here this morning, guys. Tom and Teresa. This morning, you can open up to the book of Luke, chapter 15. Luke 15. I preached on Luke 15 years ago at this pulpit. Some of you might remember it. You don't have to. It's alright if you don't. But today is going to be a very different focus. And I'm so excited. Because I want to open it up and, and read it again, as you know me, as a Middle Eastern story. This is a Middle Eastern book we read. And I want to read this in its context and get a really exciting idea this morning. You know, we're going to read the story of the prodigal son. In the Middle East, they call it the parable of the lost son. I call it the parable of the two lost sons because both are lost. Now, elder brothers 
Uh, younger brothers, you may have heard of this, you know, you have both in that story, the elder brother, the younger brother. I, I, I'm convinced both are lost, but that's actually for another time. We're just going to focus on the younger brother. And the big idea this morning, I want to give it away up front, actually. I want you to see that the younger brother is restored by the father at great personal cost to the father. And is restored how? He's given his identity back. He's given his identity as a son. And so the title of the message is Identity as a Gift. Identity as a Gift. But let's read the story. Luke 15. We'll read the opening of the chapter and then we'll skip down to the the parable, the part of the parable we want to look at. So Luke 15, verse 1, I'm reading out of the NIV. So it may be a little different than some of your translations. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And we have the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin. And now verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Let's pray together. Lord, Almighty, Father in heaven, speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. Convict us, encourage us. I pray, Lord, that you would use me as your servant 
and shape us and change us into the image of your Son and give us a clear picture of an obedience to our identity in Jesus, your Messiah. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, you've heard the story. It starts with a complaint. Uh, the Pharisees, the, 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 the teachers of the law, the most religious men saw Jesus sitting with, welcoming, eating with sinners, with tax collectors. You know, in the Middle East, who you sit and eat with, especially in your own home, that you're associated with them. Your reputation is tied to who you sit down with and eat with. And Jesus is eating with the most undesirable people around. I mean, really, people who probably, many of them deserve their reputation. They're lousy people. They're people that'll pull you down, that'll be a bad influence on your children and grandchildren. Let me tell you, Jesus is sitting with them and eating with them. And they're complaining about that. In a society where appearance is so important, this man eats with sinners. And so his response is to tell them a parable. Singular, right? A parable. But you get three stories. You get three stories, so you're meant to read them, I believe, together as one idea. Three stories, one big idea, one parable, as it were. He tells them a parable. He tells them the story of the shepherd who loses one of his hundred sheep. And he goes out far and looks for it, searches in the wilderness, high and low. And when he finds it, puts it on his shoulders, you know, the idea, that image, and carries him back to his camp and brings all of his buddies together. They celebrate because he found his lost sheep. And then you have the woman in the house losing one of her silver coins, at least worth a day's wage. And she lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and searches everywhere until she finds it. And when she does, it's worth calling her neighbors together to celebrate together because she found her lost coin. And then you have the two lost sons. One is lost in the far country. And one is lost still in the house. You have both in the third story. Like the sheep lost in the wilderness and the coin lost in the house. Jesus is combining the two in, the, in the, the last story. We're going to focus on the younger son, though. You know, Jesus in these stories is basically going to say to these Pharisees, to these tax collectors, look, boys, it's far worse than you imagine. You're complaining. It's worse than you can think. I don't just welcome and eat with sinners. I go looking for them near and far. I run to them, I throw my arms around them, I kiss them in front of everyone for the world to see, and finally I drag them into a party to celebrate over them. That's what Jesus is going to tell them. But let's dive in. Because in verse 11, we have a bizarre question. Verse 11, first bit of the story, let's go straight into it, is the son asked to get his share of his father's property. He doesn't say inheritance. Inheritance implies a great deal of things. It implies taking on the mantle of your father and his role and all that he has, including responsibilities. He doesn't ask for that. He doesn't use that word in the story. Instead, he says literally, Dad, I want my share 
of the property that's going to be coming to me. And the bizarre response is the father gives him what he asks for. That's no culture. Every culture in the world finds this bizarre, I've found out so far. All right? No, there's no culture where this makes sense this, that I know of. This son is basically telling his father, I want you dead. I don't want you. I want your stuff. I'm not willing to wait for the appropriate time. I want it now. And as you find out, he wants it to, so he can go off. And the father grants it to him. I've, you know, I've asked Middle Eastern fathers, what would you do if your son asked you such a question like this? They said, I'd slap him upside the face and probably lock him in the back room of the house until he got smart and he got his sense back. You know, or, or I'd just disown him. Kick him out of the house for good. This father divides his property and gives his younger son his share. Chooses to suffer, let me say. The father chooses to endure this and divides his property. And then the verse that says that phrase, where is it? After not many days is how some translations put it. Verse 13, not long after that or after not many days. What happens? He gathers it all up and leaves. What does that mean? Was wealth in bank accounts, in stock certificates? Is that how wealth was kept in those days? No. Wealth consisted of lands, houses, herds, orchards, vineyards, servants, handmade tools, things that take generations to accumulate. That's the kind of wealth anyone had in a village in first century Palestine, Israel. And so if he gathered it all up after not many days, that means he sold it all. He sold off a chunk of the family estate. He sold off that orchard out back. He sold off some of the herd. Things that take generations to build. He sold it after not many days. Let me tell you something. Last fall, you know, we've been here on a sabbatical in the United States. We return, Lord willing, in August to the field. But I want to say that literally last fall, we're here in Williamsburg and we had to negotiate our rental lease for this year while we're gone for our apartment. It took two weeks with me, my lawyer, and the landlord haggling, debating, discussing, posturing back and forth over WhatsApp with messages and talking over the phone to finally agree on a rent for this year. Now, some of that's because of the economic changes that are happening constantly in, in our home country, but two weeks to negotiate something so simple. If you want to buy a Persian rug in the Middle East, like the, our church is strewn with beautifully, it, it at least means sitting down with the owner of the shop and drinking a cup of coffee and haggling the price and convincing him you don't really like that rug too much, but you'll take it off his hands, so you'll... You know, yeah, it has been known to take a, over a year to agree on a price for a piece of land in traditional societies in the Middle East. And this son, after not many days, Luke tells us, Jesus tells us, after not many days, gathered all together and left. So he sold it at any price. I don't even think he would have found a local buyer probably because of the shame, the disgrace of it. This younger son 
suddenly selling off part of the estate. I don't know that anyone local would have bought it. They might have had to have found an outside buyer to buy all that, get that deal. After not many days, he sells it all, he gathers it all up, and he leaves. And he went to live among the Gentiles, if it wasn't shameful enough what he's already done. And there, verse 13, 14, tell us he, he just lives wastefully. Prodigal living, wasteful living, spendthrift living, whatever word you want to use, he just wastes it all. And he runs out of his money. And about the time he runs out of his money, what happens in the land where he's, where he's staying is a famine comes. And suddenly he has no food, he has nothing, he has no source of income, and he's desperate. We know he's desperate because he goes to feed pigs. He falls so low. And there's even a hint that he might have tried his hand at begging because it says that, uh, what was it, that he, he fed the pigs. Let me move over here to verse 14. And he longed to fill his stomach, you know, uh, go down to with what the pigs ate, these pods that the pigs ate, and no one would give him anything. Not that he couldn't eat the pods. Those wouldn't have been nutritious for him anyway. But no one would give him anything. I think it even implies that he tried his hand at begging and failed. No one would give him anything. So he's hit rock bottom. And that's when he comes to his senses. He starts to think. He gets smart in a way. He starts to think, how many of the, the guys that work for my dad have plenty of bread, even some to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go back to my father. And he rehearses a speech. I'm going to say, what does he say? Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me work for you as one of your hired servants. That's his plan. You ever rehearsed a speech in your head, you know, before giving an important <laughs> phrase to your kids, your spouse or boss or whoever, employee? That's what he does. He just rehearses this speech. It's a self-improvement plan. Why do I think that? Or what, what's motivating him to even do this? It's his, his stomach. That's all he's motivated by, the text says. How many of my father's servants have enough bread and some to spare? I will go back to my dad. I'm going to tell him I sinned. I'm going to tell him I'm not, not worth being called a son anymore. And please let me work for you. Give me a job. He goes back to his dad for a job. This is not repentance. He's not turning his life around in the deepest sense or anything like that. He just came to his senses to how to feed his stomach. That's what the text says. It's a self-seeking repentance at best. A false repentance. In fact, it's the same word as put in Pharaoh's mouth after the eighth plague of Egypt when he said to Moses, I've sinned before heaven and before you. Forgive me, you may go. And then takes it back. Not long after. It's the same formulaic, lofty language in the book of Exodus. Because it's impossible for the son to fix the problem, actually. He cannot repair the real problem. What happened? He broke his father's heart. He severed a relationship. He shamed himself, not just to his father and family, but to the whole village who would have seen and known 
what happened, at least as he was selling off chunks of the family estate. I want to talk about shame for a second. It's an Eastern concept. We have it here too. It's not just Eastern. <laughs> Lots of different understandings of shame. I'm not talking about psychological shame. I'm not talking about a counselor sitting down with you and talking about shame of feeling like you're bad rather than doing bad or, or those sorts of ideas. I'm talking about biblical shame. A shame a little bit closer to what I often see in the Middle East, but even that's not the same as what we find in Scripture exactly. I'm talking about a relational break when you're naked and exposed for your wrongdoing. And I'm still crafting my definition. It's a deep concept, a gnarly concept. And I didn't grow up with it the way I now live among it today. But shame that I'm talking about is that kind of exposure for your wrongdoing, your sin, your rebellion. Biblically, it's about your reputation before God ultimately. You are filthy. You're unfit. You, you and justice are completely opposed now. What is right and the right way of things in this world that God made. And you are now out of conformity with that. You are ashamed. You are labeled. You are... You've lost face, as it were. It's an appropriate reality for, for sinful people before a holy God. The kind of shame I'm talking about. And he can't fix that. He cannot really fix the relationship between that was severed with his father. So he's going back, not going home as a son, he's going back to servanthood when he leaves and goes back to his home village. The best he can hope for is probably to sit outside of his father's house, wait for a few days of just sitting out there in, in, in torment until the father maybe sends one of his servants out to tell him, all right, boy, you... Your dad's arranged for work in the, ne in the next, uh, next door village. You can go there and survive. That's probably the best he's hoping for. You know, I knew of a Syrian man who eloped with a woman his, his parents did not agree with. Uh, eloped with a woman uh, that his parents didn't agree for him to marry. Uh, moved to the capital of Syria, Damascus. Lived there for 10, 15 years. They finally had a son. And, and he grew up. And they wanted to go back to their home village. He wanted to reconcile with his father. So he... He moved back to the village, stayed in a hotel or somewhere, and then uh, word reached his dad that he wanted to return. And finally, after a month or so, the dad arranged for him to have a little plot of land on the edge of the village where he could build a house and live if he wanted. But he never saw his son. He would not see him. And that was the extent of their reconciliation. That was the best that son hoped for and got when he returned home for marrying a woman his parents didn't approve of. There isn't a fix to this normally. And the son certainly can't fix it. You know, Ken Bailey is a great author. You can read him. I really benefited from his stuff um, on some of this. His book, The Cross and the Prodigal, he says, Ken Bailey writes, that in the deepest sense, the prodigal is not going home. He is going back to servanthood. As long as his former attitudes remain, he is still in a far country spiritually, even as he physically approached his home village. In short, at the edge of the village, he is still lost. And now we get to the climax of this bit of the story. Verse 20, where the father finds his son. While he's still far off, right? 
his father sees him and feels compassion for him and runs to him. Middle Eastern men do not run. Older men in the Middle East never run anywhere. That alone is shameful, but there's more. He runs to his son and he, he throws his arms around him. He falls on his neck, the King James language says. He kisses him in front of everybody. And I asked a Syrian villager once, what would you think if you saw this scene? You're, you live in that village, you see this, you know what the son did. The father runs to him, hugs him, kisses him, embraces him. What would you think? And he said, if I saw that, I would think that father is just as bad as that son. If he receives his son like that after what he did, that whole family is now dead to me. That's it. They're all shameful. Like father, like, like son, like father. That's the Middle Eastern perspective. That was the perspective, I believe, when Jesus told this story. The father carries, takes on himself, enters into the shame of the younger son. This is the cross in the story. It's not free. I'll just forgive you. There's a cost. It costs the father to love his son and receive him back. He found his son. He saved him. He even saved him probably from the rabble of young men probably wanting to beat him up when he came back and dared to show his disgraced face in his home village. He saved his son. And so the son delivers his speech, right? Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you. I think it was genuine that time. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then what does the son say? That's it. He drops the self-improvement line. Doesn't he? Look at it. Verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. He dropped the self-improvement plan. Why? Because he saw he was received as a son. And the father doesn't even answer him. He just says to the, the servants who have by now gathered around <laughs> wondering what's going on following this, their master running down the street. And he tells them, you get the best robe and clothe him. Put a ring on his finger. Bring the ring in from the house and put it on his finger and put sandals on his feet. Servants did not wear sandals in those days. They went barefoot in the home. He clothes him. It reminds me of Isaiah 61 when the Lord says, I'll read it to you, 61 verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of His righteousness. Putting a robe on Him covers Him, identifies Him. And who He is, a Son. Even as God gave skins to Adam and Eve, it was a mercy. It was a, a covering of shame and a labeling of you are still my children, as it were. I made you. You still have a status. Though you've broken uh, that a bit, you know, in, in that sense, you've broken that, you still bear my image, in a sense, too. It's, it's ever since that, that idea, he clothes his son. 
puts a ring on his finger. It's probably the family ring. He could have done business, conducted business in the name of that family with that ring probably. And he's restored. The father fixed the problem between them and received him back. Killed the fatted calf. Threw a party. And drug him in with him. Basically, he's telling the whole village, look, he's with me. And the whole village would have been invited. And they celebrated. This is identity as a gift. Identity as a gift. It stands in stark contrast to so much of our world where we craft our own identities. Where we have to form, create, maintain, broadcast our own identities. We all fall into this trap, I believe. It's a great contrast. I want to take just a few minutes before I close to convince you that identity is meant to be a gift for you. It's being offered to you in the Gospel. It's undeserved kindness given to you in the Gospel. It's, it's identity. Our culture, we are told to create our own identity, to discover ourselves. There's a side of that is, that is purely idolatrous. Where do we draw from when we craft our identity? There's so many resources, aren't there, for us to draw our identity from. We draw it from friendships. Whether they're in person or our social media friends. We draw it from our abilities, our competencies, our work, what we can do, we can feel. We're all functionally tempted this way, guys. Whether you think that way or not, often you lose your job, you're struggling with more than just uh, your bank account. A piece of your identity might have been tied to that. Your academic prowess. The college that accepted you. Only in the South do people ask you in, in the first meeting, you know, what college did you go to? <laughs> it seems that way. It just, it's very important to us. We put it on the backs of our cars, what college we went to. It's amazing. Or what college you're paying for your kids to go to. Um, we could be tempted by that. To identify with that quite a bit. The company that hired us, the strength of our ideas, our ability just to understand our world, analyze ideas, just... We could draw from the myriad of preferences and convictions that we have to form our identity, such as our political ideas, our political convictions, our allegiances. We form our identity there. Our sexuality and our sexual experiences. We let those shape sometimes the center or core or major part of our identity. Is that what that's meant for? Our race, our ethnicity, our language, where we grew up, where we live now, our lifestyle, our diet can shape us who we are. If you were to identify yourself in a sentence or two, some people might say, I'm a vegan. That's very important to them. Morally, health-wise, all sorts of reasons. Our identity, we draw from so many places. Does our identity consist in the sum of all of your Instagram and TikTok posts? It might, for <laughs> For many. Sorry, for others in the room, uh, does your identity consist in all of your Facebook and Twitter posts? Yeah. There's a generational gap there I've, I've seen. Um, you know, it's intoxicating and attractive to get likes and reposts and comments online. It's very attractive. It boosts the dopamine levels in your brain. Google that and find out about it. 
It rewards you on a deep mental level when you get that affirmation. And it, it feels good, and you just you, you find, you know, that's who I am. I'm a guy who can really post great videos, great content on social media. I have a great following. It's my community. It's my people. And I identify there. Or do we divide, define ourselves by our experiences? Better yet, Instagrammable experiences. You can Google that. You can go to whole vacations full of Instagrammable experiences. Visually stunning to post online. Our children, our grandchildren can define us. If you don't believe me, just wait till one of them goes astray. And some of us can feel deeply unsecure because we identified so much of who we are with how well our children are doing. It's not a bad thing to care about your kids, but we identify there. And we feel a sense of success or shame based on how they're doing. Or we could draw from our physical health, our mental health, and let that define us for good or ill. Does your poor mental health define you? It doesn't really need to be your definition of who you are. No. But we, we take that on. Or our strength, our, our athletic ability, all of it. We maintain it before the audience that's important to us. Whether it's the church, most people don't care less what people at church think in this world. But for some of us, that's very important. For most of us. Or in front of our colleagues, in front of our family, all of our friends, anyone you care about, we just maintain this identity in front of that audience. It's so important to us. And it is laborious. It is complicated. It's overwhelming. It's exhausting. And it carries the constant risk of misstepping, getting it wrong. The younger son came to his village with a crafted plan to take on the identity of a servant. And he experienced something completely unexpected and even scandalous. He was made a son again. It was offered to him, complete, ready to go, identity. You're my son. I'm embracing you, kissing you, clothing you, shoes on your feet, ring on your finger, come in and sit with me. We're going to have a party. That's what he found. Wow. Our identity is not self-discovered in, in the sense that we have to craft it. It's not a handmade identity, <laughs> but given to you by God Himself. It's offered to you in the Gospel. That is who we're made to be. Would you be moved by God's love for you? Would you let yourself be moved and, and broken down to receive that? Believing that God has made you a daughter, a son. Believe the Gospel. Then you can go about after that building and creating and, and doing all sorts of things. But now you're doing it out of a freedom, an identity that's solid, kept for you in heaven. Unshakable, untouchable. You're a child of God. That's the gift of the Gospel. Go out now and then you can live your vocation, whatever it is. This is the freedom of having identity in the Messiah. You're free to do what you could never do before, to actually live as God made you, to be His image bearer, to be creative, to do all these great things that you love, work, be competent, dream dreams. Of all people, we are the best positioned to dream in this world because we're part of what God is doing for into eternity and building the kingdom. But do it out of an identity that's given to you and you just accept it. And when you forget the party, when you feel discouraged, apathetic, 
10 years ago, you came to faith in Christ and now you're just not feeling it. You're not there. You've been disobedient in some ways. Whatever. Remember the party. Remember the feast. Remember what your father said over you in the Gospel. You are my son. You're my daughter. That's what the Gospel says to you. If you've come to Jesus in faith, repenting of your sin, believing. It's an identity. It's a gift. It's a lot less work. You can rest in it. Guys, we're going to move on to our own feast this morning. Let's pray for a moment though first. Father, thank You for the identity You've given us. Work in us by Your Spirit to rest in that identity. To relish in it. To serve and flourish out of it. And be with us as we eat this meal you gave us, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.